You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. Here's what it says. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole land, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, grab the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the elder son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him, What's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf. Because, it, uh, because he has him back safe and sound. The elder brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, You killed a fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and was found. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we um, come before you tonight, God, asking that uh, the power of your Holy Spirit would be present in this place, God, and it would prepare our hearts, Lord, for the truth of your word. 
God, I stand up here very humbly, Lord, um, knowing I have, God, no right and really no ability to carry the weight of your word tonight, Lord. But I believe you do, Lord, and you, God, will impart into us tonight, God, a unity of spirit to um, have eyes to see and ears to hear what you have to say to us. We just thank you, God, and we invite your presence into this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this was one of the most popular parables taught by Jesus. We, uh, most of us have, pro- have probably heard this parable at one point or another in our lives. Um, it's usually titled, The Prodigal Son, which is not what Scripture gives. That's not the title Scripture gives it. It's something that's been attached over history and through the church um, and that title, The Prodigal Son, is a little bit misleading because um, there's two sons, two lost sons in this story, and one very generous father. Um, when Jesus is telling this story, he's redefining for his audience two things. Uh, one, what it means to be lost, and two, what it means to be found. At the beginning of uh, this chapter, Luke 15, Jesus is teaching to a mixed crowd. He's, it says that uh, sinners, the tax collectors and prostitutes, were, were with him and were sitting underneath his teaching and were drawn to him. But it also says that, that Pharisees, religious leaders, were sitting in the back and, and they were murmuring, they were muttering about him. Um, in uh, verse 1 of chapter 15, it says... Um, Now, tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, that's a great word, muttered, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. And what it meant for Jesus to to sit with these people, the prostitutes and tax collectors, in this day and age to share a meal with them was acceptance. He was validating who they were, and this drove the Pharisees crazy. Because these were the people that used to come to the temple, and they used to, to pay for, uh, for sacrifices, and they used to repent and be on their knees and, and have to earn their way back into standing. And Jesus is opening these doors very easily for people to walk in and hear the word and be accepted. This is driving the Pharisees mad. <clears throat> so they start complaining about Jesus. Ah, he's welcoming these people. He's eating with them. And, and Jesus goes into a series in uh, Luke 15, a series of stories. He starts with the story of a sheep that wanders off from the flock and gets lost. And the shepherd leaves the flock and he goes after the one. When he finds it, he puts it around his neck, carries it home and celebrates with his friends. He's found the lost sheep. Jesus tells a second story in Luke 15 about a coin, a woman who had a silver coin that was precious to her and and it was lost and she was scouring her house looking for it until she finally found the coin and she told her friends and they came and they celebrated with her that the coin was found. And then he finishes with this story of the two lost sons. And the theme of all of these stories that Jesus is telling as he's sitting in this uh, place with, with both sinners and Pharisees, the theme is that every one of the stories, something or someone is lost. And someone has to go out and find them and restore them back in each one of those stories. It's the theme throughout all three. 
And so Jesus begins the this, this story of the two lost sons, starting with the younger son. And the younger son goes to his father and he says, Give me, father, all that is due to me. Give me my estate. And this would have been legal for him to ask for. Legally, he could ask for what was due to him, but it would have been incredibly shameful for him to ask his father this. Essentially, what he's saying is, all those things I'm going to get when you're dead, let me have them now. Or in other words, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead, because then I could have all my stuff. You can just imagine as a father hearing those words. It's been really, really hard to hear. He's essentially saying, I could care less about you, dad. I really want that stuff that I have coming to me. And this would have been incredibly embarrassing for the father. The family would have known about it. Word would have got out. And it would have been, brought a lot of shame. And, and most scholars say that the typical response in this day and age, in this culture, if a son were to say that, was a beatdown. Now, I got whooped when I was a kid and when I did uh, dumb stuff. But we're talking about serious. These are people who stoned people to death for sinning. So you can imagine what would happen if, if a son came and acted this way to his father. He was going to get a whooping, get cast out of the house penniless, and be essentially cut off, disowned from the family. That would have been the typical response. But that's not what we see from this father. It's remarkable. He doesn't throw out the son. Instead, he goes and liquidates a third of his estate. This is serious money that we're talking about. In, in this culture, uh, the son, the two sons that would have been divided up, everything their father had would have been divided up. 60% would have gone to the older son, 40% to the younger son. So what we're saying is if this father had a million dollar estate, he is going and he's selling land and selling uh, uh, animals and selling crops and handing his younger son a check for $400,000. And you know, everyone would have known about this. This would have been really hard to hide. Why is Brother Shmuley driving the smart car now? Oh, he downgraded. You didn't hear? He sold a third of everything that he had to his little son. <clears throat> it would have been a serious, serious stake that the, the father uh, was taking up. Uh, and why does the father do this? We don't know. It doesn't tell us the heart or the reasoning behind it. All we know is the son made it known what his heart was, what his intentions were. And a father said, your will be done. And he handed him that check. And now what Jesus is doing as he's teaching this crowd, he's walking them through this story that they would have been shocked to hear a son act like this in a family. What he's saying is there's, there's a different definition of being lost that Jesus is talking about. See, the Pharisees would have said, you see the prostitute there? We know what she does. We know how she makes her living. She is a lost cause. She's a lost person. We know it. And what Jesus is saying is that part of being lost starts way earlier than where this woman is. It starts in the heart of this son from the moment he says, I wish you were dead, Dad. Give me my stuff. There's a separation that's happening in his relationship with the Father, and that's what Jesus is alluding to. 
So your young, younger son kind of throws it in his dad's face and um, says, I'm tired of living under your roof. I'm tired of living under your rules. I will go make a life for myself. I'm taking control of my life now. And the father says, okay. What we see happen to the son is he takes all of that control that he was seeking under his father, and he never really has it. He throws it into all other things in his life. You can't take control away from God and hand it uh, to yourself. You, You won't ever have control. You might think you have control, but we see where he ends up. At the end of uh, that section of Scripture, it says that he was completely spent in every way. Emotionally, spiritually, financially, he's spent. He never had any control in the first place. The money, relationships, connections, everything is gone. The younger son has nothing left. It gets so bad that this young son ends up in a pig farm. Have you ever been to a pig farm? I have. This summer, uh, our family went up to Oregon to visit uh, my wife's side of the family at a family reunion. And we went one day early so we could visit Uncle Lowell's pig farm. Yes, my wife has an uncle named Lowell and he has a pig farm. Real true story. So we went up a day early and uh, we went to Uncle Lowell's pig farm. And my daughter, Gracie, I think she's sitting in here actually. Yeah, she's sitting right there. Gracie was so excited about the pigs. She's like, I want to hold the pigs, and I want to feed the pigs. And uh, she had this idea of, uh, like, Charlotte's Web, the Wilbur, you know, like, little hats and the bottle and, like, oh, a little pig. Okay. (laughs) You can smell Uncle Lowell's pig farm from, like, a mile down the road. Like, you know when you're getting close. And uh, I think... Gracie had a real awakening uh, when we walked into that place, and it it was the most filthy, disgusting, just, I can't even tell you more because you'll throw up in your mouth. It's just, it's so gross. It's just filth. They just live in filth all the time. And this is why the Hebrew, in the Hebrew culture, you couldn't eat a pig. You couldn't touch a pig. You couldn't even be near a pig or you'd be unclean. And I totally understand that now. It makes way more sense. And this is where the young brother, this is where he finds himself, in the, in the filth of all of this. And this is where Jesus says, he has a moment of clarity. Jesus says that when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And I am starving to death. You see what happens here. It doesn't say that he felt bad for what he did. It doesn't say that there's a new love for his father that kindles up in his heart. It doesn't say there's any remorse. It simply says that he realizes he's lost. There's a moment of clarity. He comes to his senses and says, how did I get here? Henry Nouwen um, he was a professor of theology at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, he went on and did other things too, but I think that was the highlight of his career. Go Irish. Um, he wrote a, uh, a book called The Return of the Prodigal Son, A Story of Homecoming. And in this, he explains really well um, this shift 
this, um, this distance that happened between the younger son and his father, the younger son leaving his home and seeking to make a life on his own. And he explains it like this. Home is the center of my being, where I can hear the voice saying, you are my beloved in whom I am well pleased. Jesus made it clear that that voice he heard in the Jordan River and on Mount Tabor can be heard by me. Pause for a second. That's an amazing thought. That the words that the Father spoke to Jesus when he was baptized on Mount Tabor, when he said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, that we can hear that voice because of Jesus. That's remarkable. I didn't want to just pass that over. Now and continues, he says, he makes it clear that there is a home with the Father. But if I decide to keep control, if I go out into the world, I will keep running around asking everything, do you really love me? Do you really love me? I give all the power to the voices of the world. It's the world that defines me then. The world's love is full of ifs. Yes, I love you. If you're good looking, if you are intelligent, if you are well off, if you are educated, if you have connections, if you're productive, endless ifs. And it is not too hard to know when I have left home spiritually. Resentment, jealousy, desire for revenge, lust, greed, ambition, rivalry are all obvious signs that I have left home, that I am letting the world define me with its love full of ifs. But when I am home with the Father, when I know I am the beloved, I can confront and console and admonish and encourage without any fear of rejection or need for affirmation. I can suffer persecution without desire for revenge or receive praise without using it as proof of my own goodness. What Nowen is describing and what was the story of the younger son, I think, was the story of so many of us in this city. That we left home, that we ran to a new place to make a name for ourselves, uh, to make a life, to, to prove to us or someone else that we were worth something. We give our, our mind, and we give our heart, and we give our body away to the things in this city, hoping that we will get in a response, you are lovely, you are loved, you are really worth it. We're hoping to hear those words. And sadly, so many of us, we end up in the same place as the younger son, in the pig hole, in the filth starving and alone. What Jesus is teaching is that there's more than one way to be lost. Lost doesn't just mean wandering the wrong road like the sheep in the first story. It doesn't mean being displaced like the coin in the second story. What Jesus is saying is that some of us choose to be lost. Some of us choose to reject the Father and make a life of our own. And God, in his perfect, unconditional love for us, he says, okay, you will be done. And he doesn't control us. 
He allows us to make that choice. And so with the younger son, after a little bit of common sense comes to him, this realization, he says, I can go be a hired servant in my father's house. And then he prepares a written apology. Have you guys seen these? Maybe you had to do this uh, at school when you were little. Uh, We see this with athletes and politicians all the time. Um, They stand before the press conference. I am terribly sorry for the way I've ashamed our city, and I promise never to use performance-enhancing drugs again until next season. Or, I am terribly sorry for the shame I brought on my family, for the lewd uh, behavior I had in the office. I promise not to act that way anymore unless it's texting. Um, they, it's just these prepared statements, and you hear the son, he's like, okay, if I say it like this, if I, if I word it like this, I might be able to get back in with dad. And, and listen, he didn't say, I love you, dad. I'm so sorry for how I hurt you. He doesn't say, I've been such a jerk the way I've behaved. Can you please forgive me for what I've done? He doesn't say that. It says, he realizes, I'm hungry. (laughs) And no one will give me anything. But I know where I can go for care. There's one place I can think of. My father's house. So it's interesting that he says, um, I could be a hired servant in my father's house. And in this time, there were actually a different hierarchy of servants. And um, there were bond servants that were almost like family in the house. They had relationships with the kids and the parents, and they were part of the family. And then there were house servants who were kind of on the fringe, but they still had a relationship with the family. They, They watched the family grow, and they knew their names. And then at the very bottom, there were hired servants. These were the guys, as you're driving down the street, who say, two, you need two guys? I can do it. What do you, whatever it is, I think I can do it. And they're just looking for any kind of work. And they're easily hired, and they're easily dispatched. There's no relationship with them and the family. Here today, gone tomorrow. And it's remarkable that the son, has, he leaves the father's house thinking, I will be king of the world. I will carve out a destiny for myself. And he returns with this humble heart saying, I will be a hired servant. I will be the lowest guy on the totem pole to be back in my father's house. And there's something powerful in what Jesus is teaching about the condition of our heart. In Psalms 138.6, it says, God cares for the humble, but he keeps his distance from the proud. When we humble ourselves, we, we actually get ears to hear the invitation God is giving to come home. Our pride often causes static, where we miss that invitation. So he begins this long journey home, and there's hope in his heart for what will happen when he gets there. And sure enough, in one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture, we get a picture of the father's heart for his son. We see how we can be found. Verse 20 says, He arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. You see what's happening here? There's there's no apology yet. 
The son hasn't asked for forgiveness. He hasn't groveled at the father's feet. He hasn't paid back any money. All he's done is turn toward home. Just turn toward home. It says the father's waiting. He's watching on the horizon for a glimpse of his son. And, and it, it would have been unthinkable that a man of this stature would run through the field. They don't run. You walk with dignity. No, he, he runs to his son and he throws himself on his son and he kisses him and he hugs him and he delights in him. It just kind of brings to life Revelation 3.20 that says, um, God tells all of us, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. It's the amazing thing about our God is uh, he doesn't require a pilgrimage. He doesn't require X amount of hours of prayer uh, or certain sacrifices. He simply says, I'm knocking. I'm coming to you and I'm knocking. If you will just crack the door open. If you'll just turn towards home, I'll come running for you. I'll throw my arms around you. It's remarkable. And the reaction of the father in this story is, is the same. It's astonishing. Can you imagine the humiliation that this man would have lived through? We don't know if it's been days or weeks or years. But this dad's been through a lot. Endured a lot of shame in his community because of the younger son. And by all accounts, this father had every right to cut the son off and pronounce him dead. But he doesn't. What he does is remarkable. He, uh, after the son has um, made an attempt at this kind of written, thought-out apology, um, the dad cuts him off. He never even gets to finish. He says, servant, come here. Bring the best robe in the house and put it on him. Give, give me a ring. We're going to put it on his finger and sandals on his feet. You see, what he's doing is he is reestablishing the son. He is bringing him back to the same place he was at before any of this ever happened. It was as if the father said, I've forgotten all of that. That's not who you are. This is who you are. You're my son. See, you've got a robe of the house. You've got a ring. It says you're somebody. You are somebody in this house. He reestablishes, he restores the son to who he was before he brings in the fattened calf, and, and remember, meat is a luxury. This would have been like one of those Kobe beef uh, uh, calves, you know, that get more massages than I do, and uh, like take baths in butter, and you know, like, that's what this fattened calf is, and, and they bring the calf in, and they party, and they throw a party. Don't say God doesn't know how to party, but he's no fun. Every story ends with God throwing a party. And this party's going. And in our westernized mind, the way we think, we usually end the story there. We say, man, God is so loving. He's so gracious. Look at what he did for the younger son. That's so good. Which is all true. But see, the people who were listening to Jesus teach this would not have been shedding tears of sentiment. They would have been outraged. The Pharisees would have been outraged. They'd be saying, 
See, this is why the prostitutes and the tax collectors, and this is why they follow him. It's free. Free grace. Do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. It's too easy. That's not how God is. That's not how God loves. Where's the repentance? Where's the sacrifice? Where's the groveling? You have to feel the pain of what you've done. You're saying sin doesn't cost anything. No wonder these people follow you. That's what they'd be saying. But Jesus isn't done with the story yet. He continues on. As the party was going on, the elder brother comes in from the office. And he hears the music and the laughter. And he pulls one of the guys aside and says, what, what's going on? I didn't know there was a party tonight. And he gets the news that little brother's home. And in the reaction of the elder brother, we see his heart. And the condition of his heart the whole time he's been in his father's house. He's not happy his brother's home. He does not run to meet him and throw his arms around him. There's no joy in his reception. Instead, the elder brother is furious. See, when the father restores the younger brother, he sets the two back on an even playing field. And that's not okay with the older brother. It's as if the the father's saying, that was a mistake, he gets a do-over, he's my son, back in the house, everything just as it was, and that's not okay with the older brother. In the older brother's heart, he says, I'm much better than this guy. And let me tell you why, he says to the dad when the dad comes out, why aren't you coming into the party? Which would have been a huge slap in the face. Again, to the father. The son says, let me tell you why. All my life I've worked for you. I've never misbehaved. I've never slept around with women. I've never blown your money in Vegas. What the elder brother is saying is, I have earned everything I have coming to me. I've earned it. And this brother would have been the golden child. Maybe you had one of these in your family. Maybe you are this person in your family. Uh, Straight A's in high school, uh, captain of the football team, volunteers at church on Sunday, gets into the number one school they applied to in college, and then comes back to run the family business, okay? And everyone in the community is like, oh, I wish you were more like Johnny. He never messes up, and he's so good and so smart and good looking. When the father restores the younger son, he's saying to the elder brother, none of that matters to me. And that was his whole life. That was everything he had built up. And you're saying it doesn't matter? The father's saying, you guys are my sons, even playing field. No, 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 no. I went to Harvard, okay? You know what I've done for you? How hard I've worked for you? Don't tell me we're on the same. That's not fair. The father says, you are equal. In uh, verse 31, he says, you are my son. And you are with me always. Everything I have is yours. You see, that is not good enough. 
for the older son. The father invites him into the party. He refuses. And here's the irony. This is where the story closes with Jesus. Here's the irony in the story. Both sons are lost. Both sons try to control their father. One by leaving home and taking his fortune into his own hands. And the other by staying home and manipulating his fortune. Neither, listen, neither of these sons wanted their father. They just wanted what their father had. And in the end, only one son gets left out in the dark. The one who refused to humble himself. The one who never came to his senses and never realized he needed the father. As I said at the very beginning, this story is typically called the prodigal son. Do you know what that word prodigal means? I used to think it meant bad. Here's what it means. Prodigal means recklessly extravagant. Giving profusely. Lavish. And each of the characters in this story were prodigal. The younger son was filled with prodigal sin. He lived out a prodigal sinful life. The elder son was filled with prodigal pride, extravagantly prideful. The father was filled with prodigal love, recklessly extravagant. You see that religious leaders were wrong when they said Jesus made it too easy, that he made it cheap and it didn't cost anything. The sin of the younger son cost the father very, very much. It hurt. The cost was high, financially, emotionally, relationally. But the father took the cost on himself rather than extract it from his son who could have never paid back the debt that he owed his father. And this is the love of Christ for us. He knows the weight of our sin, but taking it on himself, he pays every debt we owe. And he runs to meet us and throws his arms around us and restores us as if nothing had ever happened. Prodigal love. He restores us as his sons and as his daughters. Let's pray. tonight that we are a room filled with young and, and older brothers and some of us God both in one person I 
God, we have very little hope on our own. There's not a lot we can hang on to, Lord. God, I thank you for your word that is um, like water to a thirsty man. It brings life into us, Lord. And in this story, God, you tell us we will never be too far gone. God, that you sit and you watch on the horizon waiting for us to return. God, that even in our pride, you leave the party and walk outside and invite us back in. You pursue us, God, is what you're saying. Because you love us in a way that's hard to imagine. God, tonight, would you minister to us in our time as we respond to you? Would you remind us of your promises, Lord God, and the truths of who we really are? God, would you silence the voices that we have listened to in this world, God, that have tried to define who we are and and what makes us valid, Lord God, what makes us worth anything of value? God, would you, in your just reckless love, Lord God, would you pour out on us your grace tonight? In a tangible way, God, would you just ruin our hearts? Break us wide open, Jesus, that you might heal us, restore us to the way you see us, God. In Jesus' name.